Good morning. Let's try it again. Thanks for being here, everyone. Um, man, super grateful for our worship team um, and all they do every week. Would you just help me thank them for all they do? Robert, thank you. I saw the guitar drop. That was killer. Um, killer save, to be honest. Been there many times. Um, Hey, thank you for being here. My name is Ryan. Um, I have the fortune of being one of the pastors here at ACC Downtown. Uh, if you are new here, obviously we are, we are so incredibly grateful you're here. Uh, thank you for the teachers who are willing to come forward and allow us the opportunity to pray for you. Yes, thank you for that as well. That was really awesome. Uh, Kayla, who was sharing at the beginning, that was really all of her idea um, to walk alongside you guys and to support you. And I love that. It was just an awesome opportunity to celebrate that. I hope we can continue to be a church about those things. Now, speaking of this church, um, I am so grateful to be a part of this uh, family, is what I would say. It's, it's awesome. Every week I come here on a Sunday, and, you know, obviously I'm involved somewhat. Um, but um, I really enjoy being here. It feels like a family reunion every Sunday that I get to be a part of that I actually want to go to. I don't know if you guys have ever been to a family reunion you didn't want to go to. Hopefully it, was your, it, hopefully it wasn't your family. Um, hopefully you enjoy your family reunions. But I feel like every week I get to, to be a part of this family. Now, with that being said, because we are a family, we're very well aware of each other's stories and lives. And that's the way it's designed to be. That's the way the church is, is the body of Christ. We are the family um, but because of that, I know many of your stories. I know many of you are in different seasons as you're walking with Jesus or you're discovering so many things or relationally and family-wise, financially, work-wise. And I know many of you this morning are in a season of waiting. Uh, many of you, uh, we are in a season of waiting. We're, we're asking God for an answer about something specific. Uh, we are asking God for a breakthrough in a particular area of our life. Uh, we're just seeking and waiting in general, maybe wondering what to do. Others of us, though, what I've realized, we feel like we're sort of on the backside of waiting. We feel like we've already sought God about those things, and it's no longer an answer we're getting. It's just disappointment that we're experiencing. It's, it's more, um, whereas waiting is anticipation, on the backside of waiting often it's just confusion. And we're waiting for God to maybe make clear what happened or why that specific request or breakthrough didn't come. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to be able to answer this one very simple question with our time this morning in God's word. And that's this question. What do you do while you wait? What do you do while you wait? Whether that is in the intention and anticipation for an answer or on the backside, the confusion and the disappointment with the result. See, this morning in our text that we're going to study, we are going to come in contact with a family that is incredibly close friends with Jesus. And they are going to experience both of these situations. Both the tension and the anticipation for Jesus to show up at their request, at their need, and the disappointment when he doesn't. And what the scripture is going to teach us this morning is what we do while we wait. How do we learn to trust God during these waiting periods? How do we learn to approach God during these times? 
And how do we respond to him at all? And so we are in John chapter 11. Uh, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me there if you have it on your phone. Or, and if you don't, we put the scriptures on the screen for you to study along with us. And we're going to read um, pretty much the whole chapter of John chapter 11. Um, it's a really famous story. Uh, about a family that was really close to Jesus. And before we read this, I'm going to give you a little context. Uh, in John chapter 10, Jesus uh, breaks down this massive idea that he is the good shepherd. And his main emphasis is that he's the shepherd and that his sheep hear his voice. And he leads his sheep. And he communicates to his people, his disciples, his church, how to distinguish the voice of the shepherd comparatively to the voice of false shepherds who want to lead them astray. Now, in that text, Jesus reveals that he is God. He's the Messiah to come. And the religious leaders don't like this. So in that moment, they try to stone him. And Jesus flees from the scene with his disciples and goes to a remote area where he's sort of hanging out and waiting for instructions from his father. In this remote area, about 20 miles from the family we're going to study this morning, he receives word from this family super close to him about a prayer request they have. And that's where we enter in John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. And here's how the text reads. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So you're catching what's going on here. Lazarus is sick and his family has sent word. So the sisters sent to him, that's to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? But Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, okay? And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Obviously, they're not getting it. Let's pray real quick. Jesus, we uh, thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. And Lord, as we, many of us, sit in a season of waiting, God, we need to hear from you. What do we do while we wait? And so, Holy Spirit, I am asking that you would speak to your people God, I'm asking your presence would be tangible in this place and that you would lead us and guide us to respond. We wish to hear from you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. 
So this morning in our text, we come into contact with this very well-known family, the family of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, who are really close to Jesus. And they are in a predicament. Their brother Lazarus, according to the text, has been ill. Um, If you read the background on this, it seems like he's been ill for a little while. And so Mary and Martha send for Jesus. They send messengers on behalf of the family to go find Jesus because they know that Jesus loves them and Jesus has the ability to heal him. Now, let me just say this real quick. The best thing you can do if you have a problem in your life is to send for Jesus. The best thing you can do is get straight on your knees this morning and send for Jesus. And this family knew this. They knew Jesus loved them. And let me, let, let me fill you in on a secret this morning. He loves you just the same. To the same degree he loved this family, he loves you. And so they send for Jesus. Now, what does Jesus do? How does he respond? Look at verse 5 in your Bible. It says this. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so... I'm going to pause there. If you write notes or if you use your pen on your Bible or if you can highlight on your phone, just circle that word so. Because here's what happens. Jesus loves Lazarus, Mary, Martha, so. Meaning, therefore, because I love them, here's what happens. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. So are you catching this? They send word for Jesus. Hey, your friend, the guy you love, the family you care about, he's ill. And Jesus, in his love, he waits. He waits. He doesn't immediately go. He doesn't drop everything he's doing and head straight to the city. He waits. And in the text, it implies twice The author, John, communicates twice that Jesus loved this man. And it's so important to remember this because what happens next is not going to make sense unless you know how deeply Jesus loved this man. Jesus loved Mary and Martha and her brother, so he waits. What we see is this. Jesus has much more in mind this morning than simply saving Lazarus' life. He has much more in mind than simply saving his life. He's going to save many more. If you're writing notes this morning, here's the first thing I want to share with you regarding what do you do while you wait. As I was studying this text, here's the first point is this. You remember God's purposes, that they rarely align with our plans, but they always promote his glory and our good. I know that's a mouthful, so I'm going to go through that again. What do you do while you wait? The first thing that we see is this. You remember God's purposes. They rarely align with our plans, but they always promote his glory in our good. In the story of a family that seeks their friend for a miracle, uh, most of this won't under, you won't make sense of this unless you know this truth. That God's purposes rarely align with our plans. Can, can I just get an amen from anyone? They rarely align with our plans. The prophet Isaiah said this 700 years before Jesus shows up on the scene when he said this in Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways 
My ways, declares the Lord, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In pretty much every area of our life, we are never fully going to understand why God does the things he does. Oftentimes, God's plans will never align with our plans. Do we have any planners in the room this morning? Raise your hand if you're a planner. Type A people, raise your hand if you're a type A person. How many of you have a plan for this entire day right now? Go ahead, pull it out, delete it. Okay, that's the takeaway for this sermon. Um, so God's purposes rarely align with, with my plans. But here's what we do know from the text. Is that they always fulfill his purposes. They rarely align with my plans, but they always fulfill his purposes. What is God's purpose according to the text this morning? The thing he wants to accomplish is two things in all scenarios of your life. In every season of your life, whether in waiting or advancing, whether you feel like you're crushing it or you're in the bottom of a valley, God wants to reveal two things. Here's the two things, his glory and your good. He wants to do two things. He wants to get glory, and he wants to fulfill your good. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, Jesus is going to lay his cards on the table for what he's about to do. And here's what he says, according to, to his disciples. This illness, Lazarus, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Are you seeing this? Before Jesus does anything, he's going to show you his cards on what his purpose is. This illness, what's going to happen, trust me here, it's not going to make sense, but I'm doing this so I can get glory and Jesus will be revealed through this. We see this with the primary example of Lazarus. In this particular situation, what we learn is his friend Lazarus is going to die. Shocker, I know, I gave away the story. All right, we haven't got there yet. Here's what's going to happen. Your boy Laz, he's going to die. Lazarus is going to die. But Jesus accordingly tells us that he's going to bring him back from the dead. And here's what's going to happen. Because Lazarus, he allows him to pass and he brings him back, through the story of Lazarus, Jesus is going to be revealed in a way that he couldn't without allowing this situation to happen. Lazarus, when he's raised from the dead, is about to be a walking billboard for the glory of God. Everywhere he goes, people are going to be able to see the glory of God manifested in a person. In fact, in John chapter 12, if you fast forward, you'll see that the religious leaders want to kill Lazarus because everywhere he goes, people are coming to faith in Jesus. Let me tell you something. This is how your life is designed to be. That everywhere you go, you are a walking billboard for the glory of God. That in every season of your life, he's trying to produce glory and good. So this is what Jesus is doing. He wants to get glory. Now, how does God get glory through your life? According to verse 4, the way God gets glory is when Jesus is revealed through your life. He says that the Son of God would be glorified through this situation. When Jesus is revealed through your life, God gets glory. When people see you, but through you they see Jesus revealed, God gets glory. And he is exalted and worshipped and believed, and God gets glory. Let me ask you this. You think about this season for you, or whatever you're wrestling with or waiting on. 
What if God didn't simply want to relieve every problem you have, but he desired to reveal himself through them? Think about this. What if God didn't want to relieve all of your problems, but to reveal himself through them? His goal in seasons of waiting is that Jesus would be glorified through it. That through these seasons of waiting and prayer requests and needs and dependence, that Jesus would be revealed through it. Let me tell you a few ways God gets glory that we don't think about. God gets glory when we can say God is good when our life is not. Come on, somebody. Come on. God gets glory when you can say, God is good when my life is not. God gets glory when I can say, I trust Jesus when the world says you should stop following him. God gets glory when, like the Testament, the Old Testament characters of old, when they say that even if God doesn't answer me, I'm still going to follow. That's how God gets glory. Listen, think about this. What if the only way someone could see Jesus was by seeing how you responded to suffering? What if the only way somebody could see Jesus was by seeing how you responded to suffering? Listen, have you ever gone through a season of waiting, depression, you're at the bottom? Where do you turn in the Bible? I bet you money. You don't turn to the miracles and you don't turn to the feeding of the 5,000. You know where I go? Job. I want to know somebody who's got it worse than me. All right, I'm tired. No, I don't want to deal with Peter. I don't want to deal with those fools who are getting blessed. I don't want to see somebody healed. Show me Job. I want to hear his story because Job, his life, let's be straight, it sucked. And we turn to stories like that because through the suffering of one man, all of us respond and give God glory. How could that man endure that suffering and still follow God? You see, it's those spaces that make us love and exalt Jesus because they don't glorify people. We turn to the Psalms, where in every Psalm, David is an emo boy. For the first 50, probably, every Psalm is like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And we read those, and when we're at the very bottom, there's such comfort in it. That's where we turn. What if that was the only way for somebody to see Jesus? I was speaking with uh, somebody in ministry this week, and they were telling me how they and their husband have been trying to get pregnant for years, and they've been dealing with this waiting season. God has placed this desire on their heart for children, for a family, but they wait, and they wait, and they wait. But here's what was powerful. It wasn't that the waiting was exalted. It was that God's purposes and plans and trusting him was exalted in that story. And they continue to tell me, man, we're, but we're seeing God show up. We're seeing God move. You know, we're trusting him more than ever. For other families that we know that have dealt with that same problem, they felt God move them into foster care system or into adoption, and God uses the very thing that we suffered with to bring him glory in a new way. You see, oftentimes the only way someone can see Jesus is by seeing how you respond in the waiting and in suffering. But the second thing that God does in every season of waiting in all of these things, though it may not align with our plan, is he always promotes his glory. And the second thing he always does is he always works for our good. Okay? You're probably familiar with this verse, Romans 8, 28 and 29. Here's what the text says. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pause there. All things work for good. It does not say all things are good. 
Come on, somebody. He does not say all things are good. He doesn't say every season of waiting is good. It doesn't mean the suffering is good. It says God works it for good. And what is that good? Next verse, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. I'll pause there. God's good in your life is always focused on making you more like Jesus. That is the good God is trying to accomplish in every season. That is the sweetest thing I've seen today. God is working all things for good. That good is making you more like Jesus in every situation, in every circumstance, in every season. What God is accomplishing is two things. He will work it for his glory and he will work it for your good. What he will do is he will take difficult seasons, waiting, struggling, suffering, hurting, longing, praying, and he will say, I'm going to work this for your good. You know how I'm going to do this? I'm going to bring you closer to me. I'm going to make you look more like me. I'm going to conform you to the image of Jesus. Let me tell you something. Sometimes God doesn't want to change your circumstances. He wants to change you through your circumstances. He will use your problems, your pain, your waiting to transform you in it so that you don't get through a waiting season. You grow through a waiting season. There is no point of God transitioning you to the next season if you didn't grow through that season to take all of Jesus into that next season. So God is so invested in you becoming like Jesus that he will let you take this test over and over and over and over. Some of y'all right now, you're dating the fifth guy, but guess what? It's just a test, okay? And God's saying, hey, this guy ain't it. I'm going to let you keep taking this test again. Or girl, for the fellas. I'm going to let you do this again. I'm going to change you through this. So God's, his purposes, they always accomplish two things. They work for his glory and our good. But here's the second thing that we see in the text that we're going to read that, that really stood out to me as far as what, what do you do while you wait. Here's the second thing. You remember this. You know that God is moved by your mourning. In the waiting, as you are waiting on God in whatever season that is, as you're trusting him, remember this. God is moved by your mourning. And if that doesn't make sense at all, let's, let's read this in the text. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, so Jesus shows up on the scene, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. God, if you had been here, if you just showed up, if you would have answered my prayer request, my brother would not have died. This wouldn't have happened. Verse 22, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know that he'll rise in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes, lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
So she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Listen, we, we know that God is moved by our mourning. What do you do while you wait for Mary and Martha? Obviously, Lazarus, he didn't have a chance to speak in this conversation. He's been in the tomb four days. Obviously, Jesus had waited a while. And Martha approaches Jesus with this complaint. And if you had just been here. What's interesting in this text that I was just reading is you see with Martha that she is both filled with frustration and faith. She is filled with frustration and faith. She comes to Jesus and she says, look, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. But the very next verse, she says, but even now I know that you're God and whatever you ask will come to pass. Listen, you can be filled in a season of waiting with both anger and trust. You can be filled with both honesty and, and, and struggle, frustration, and fear. And, and Martha reveals this to us. And so what I want you to see is this, is that in a season of waiting or struggling or suffering, is make sure that you take all of that to Jesus. Take it all to Jesus. Because what I assume for most people is we have a lot of stuffers. Do we have any stuffers in here? I'm not talking about on Thanksgiving Day. I'm talking about emotionally, spiritually, relationally. If we're not careful, we just stuff these things down. We think, you know what, God can't really handle. That's, that's too edgy. I, you know, he doesn't want to hear how frustrated I am. I've just got to sing, you know, whatever worship song over and over and over again. And I'll, I'll just kind of get through this. But no, Martha shows us you can be filled with both frustration and faith. You can say, man, if you would, where were you, God? And yet at the same time, trust him. Those both can coincide. So we see that Martha moves towards Jesus. But here's where we see how Jesus responds in the next verse with her sister Mary. Verse 28. Now when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was in Solemn, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's like they rehearsed this together. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They didn't understand. Did you catch the, the language used there, though? Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled. So much so that it says in verse 35, the shortest verse in the entire Bible, Jesus wept. I want you to memorize that real quick with me. Um, if anything you get from this, I want you to call your mom and say, Mom, I memorized scripture today. John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. It's crazy. In that short two-word verse, there is more theology packed in that than possibly anywhere else in the Bible. Jesus, who is both 
deity and 100% human, he, being all-powerful, experiences the emotions that we experience and is moved by a crowd of people mourning and weeping the loss of their friend. I mean, how powerful is that? The God of the heavens and the earth who speaks things into existence sees you cry and is so deeply moved and greatly troubled that he weeps with you. How powerful is that? Jesus is moved by your mourning. In fact, we see he moves straight into action in this text. The very next verse, it says that Jesus was deeply moved again. When he sees those who are mourning and hurting and broken and waiting and expectant and disappointed and frustrated, they move towards Jesus, and, in, and then he moves towards them. James 4.8 talks about this. It's, as we move towards God, he moves towards us. And so in this text, what I want you to see is in a season of waiting, God is moved by your mourning. This is why it is so crucial that you go to him with everything you have with all of your frustration, with all of your anger, uh, with all of your wonder and disappointment, are you moving towards him? I've never seen this before, but in a, a, the verse in Psalm 34, 18, we always quote this at funerals. We always quote this when our friends are going through hard times. But Psalm 34, 18 says this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Think about that. That means when you're hurting and you're waiting and you're longing, God moves towards you. He's near. We know God is always with us. He's omnipresent. We know the Holy Spirit fills us. And yet there's a manifestation of nearness that God moves towards us in our morning. In fact, he saves those crushed in spirit. It's as if he descends. God cannot help but respond when he sees his children hurting. He cannot help but respond. He cannot help but be moved. So here's, here's a question for you. When was the last time you took your mourning to Jesus? When was the last time that in a season of waiting or hurting that you actually went to him with all of these things? And, and get me here. Counseling is a great thing. But if you replace counseling with, without Jesus involved... Like, they're going to help give you tools to walk alongside those things, but never, never replace Jesus. You've got to go to him with everything because he moves towards you, and he hears you, and he's near to you, and he saves you. So in a season of waiting, God is moved by our mourning. We turn to him as Mary and Martha did, and we see him respond. And then here's how our story finishes. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, I love how they threw that in there. We get it. He's dead. Just a heads up. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. 
Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Many of the people who had followed, seen this whole narrative take place, came to faith in Jesus. Here's here's our last piece that we think about as we chew on what do we do while we wait. Here's key number three is this, oftentimes God calls us to obey him with what we can do while we trust him with what we cannot. God often calls us to obey him with what we can do while we trust him with what we cannot. We come to the closing of our story and Jesus, in the middle of these people's mourning, he is moved into action. He sees his people hurting, longing, weeping, and he moves into action, and he asks, where is the tomb? And he gives this command to Martha in the middle of her morning, take away the stone. Now, rightfully so, Martha, if you see the text, is very confused why Jesus would ask this. Uh, She says to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. I don't know if you know this, but my dead brother has been dead four days. Now, I think all of us can probably attest that we would have had a similar response. But Here's what happens. Jesus continues. Now, little Jewish fact here. They believed that a person's spirit would possibly stay with a dead person for three days. And so it seems that Jesus intentionally waits four days to ensure that by raising Lazarus, no one could be questioning how he came back from the dead, but knowing this had to be a miracle of Jesus. So he waits intentionally for this purpose, not just to give one man life, but to give everybody who sees it eternal life. So through this, Mary, Martha, confused by Jesus' command, he's been dead, this is going to stink, I'll be ceremonially unclean if I remove this stone, why would I do this? But Jesus responds, verse 40, Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Take away the stone. Here's what I'm learning. Like I said, oftentimes God calls us to obey him with what we can do while we trust him with what we cannot. While we wait on God, while we struggle with doubt, while we sit in confusion and frustration, God calls us to obey him with what we have now while we wait on him to show up and provide what we do not have. For Martha, this was simply removing the stone. This was, would you just, in faith, in obedience, move this stone and trust me to do what you cannot. Here's what happens, guys. In seasons of waiting in your life, oftentimes what you and I will do is we will just settle to believe, you know what, there's just really nothing I can do. And God's not showing up. So I'm just going to kind of sit this one out. And we sort of reserve to the notion that we're not involved anymore. That waiting is this very passive experience with God. But here's what you need to know. Waiting on God is a very active, trusting 
relationship and response. I thought it was so interesting in this text, in verse 40, Jesus equates the obedience of moving the stone to believing in him. In verse 40, Jesus says, I told you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. He connects obedience to belief. Meaning, if you trust me, if you believe I am who I say I am, you will obey my command. And so sometimes in a season of waiting, what God calls us to do is to obey him with what we can do while we trust him with what we cannot. Um, Megan and I have a, a couple that's uh, friends with us who live in Austin. And I was on Facebook yesterday, and um, shoot, I had it on my phone, left my phone. Anyways, um, I saw this post on Facebook. And so Megan's friends, there's a, a young lady that discipled her for a few years. And she's married to this guy named Chris. And Chris and Becca are missionaries. They had traveled to India and were living in India as missionaries. And they were there for some years doing ministry. But during COVID, they had to come back home. And so they had to come back to the States and kind of wait on the opportunity to go back overseas and kind of fulfill this call they felt on their lives. Well, during that waiting time, Chris found out that he had a very severe form of cancer. It was uh, lymphoma, which is cancer of the lymph nodes that had spread to lesions in his brain and to in the bone marrow uh, in his body. And this young man is 29 years old. He has two very young daughters. Uh, one a year old, I believe, and one uh, two or three years old. And so here's this man who's dedicated his whole life to the calling of God to be a missionary in India. He sacrificed everything, and here he comes back during COVID and finds out that he has this very severe cancer. And, but what I thought was so powerful in this scenario with, with Chris and Becca was not just that they're believing for a miracle, because they are such faith-filled people that they are seeking Jesus constantly and communicating constantly that, verse 40, we believe, and because if we believe, we will see the glory of God. They have the faith for a miracle, but what struck me was not that they're believing for a miracle, but that they're obeying Jesus in, in the present time with what they can while they wait on God to do what they cannot. And I thought it was so shocking to me. One of the ways that I saw this with them was that they threw a birthday party for their youngest daughter. And so Megan and I went, and you say, why is that so shocking? To me, it was this massive moment of faith to say, we're going to continue living our lives the way God has designed it, trusting him with what we cannot control. We're going to obey Jesus with what we can control. And so we went to this birthday party to celebrate with them. They continued teaching people at their local church how to share the gospel and how to make disciples. They started chemo. They continued chemo. They figured out health care. Here's what happens. Oftentimes God is asking us to obey him with what we can do while we trust him with what we cannot do. That's what you do in a season of waiting. You obey Jesus with what you can do as an act of faith. And if we're not willing to obey him in the little, we surely don't have the faith for the miracle. We surely don't have the faith for him to say, Lazarus, come out of the tomb, if we can't simply move the stone. So many of us in a waiting season have to look ourselves in the mirror and say, am I willing to obey Jesus with what I can do while I wait on what only he can do? So what season is that for you right now? What is that? Maybe for you in this, in this space right now, you're single and you want to be married. You want a godly spouse. 
what are you doing now with what you can do while you wait on what only God can do? Maybe you're waiting for your healing breakthrough. What are, what are you doing? What is God speaking to you on what you can do? One of the most powerful things you can do as you wait on that is what you're doing right now. Being here, being present, not isolating yourself. What is it that God's asking you? And here's, here's what I thought was so crazy in the text. Is the promise Jesus gives us in verse 40 is not that what we're asking for always comes to pass. That's not the, pros, that's not the promise that he makes in verse 40. The promise that he makes in verse 40 is this, that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. It doesn't mean that what we're asking for and contending for always comes to pass, but it does promise that you will always see the glory of God. So this morning as we close, uh, I wanted to throw some questions up for us to process through as we think about this for ourselves. Oftentimes, I know if you're anything like me, we... You know, we study God's word, we, we hear from Jesus, but we don't pause enough to listen specifically on how he wants us to respond. So what I've done is I've thrown some, some questions up here for you to process through. And I'd love for you to take a few minutes with God to just talk to him personally about this. And here's, here are some of the questions. First is to ask, what is it that you're waiting on or processing through? Like, is there anything specific it stands out on your heart uh, that just off the jump you're thinking about. This is what I've been contending for. This is what I sent word to Jesus about. This is what I'm grieving over. What is that? And so the first question, how might God want to reveal himself through this situation to you and through you? Meaning, he doesn't want, maybe he doesn't want to just relieve this problem right now, but how could he reveal himself through this? How could he use you in this? Second how can you take all your pain and frustration to God in this situation? What would that look like? How can you process with him? And third, what might God be saying you should do now while you trust him with the not yet? Is there anything that as you're waiting, God is saying, okay, I've got that. Why don't you do this? What does obedience look like right now as you wait on the not yet? So we're going to take a few uh, minutes this morning and just Allow God to speak to us. He has the better sermon this morning anyways. And he wants to communicate to each and every one of you. So take a moment just with him and let him speak.